Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler and this is Ruler Conversations. We've got a two-part podcast for you today. The second half will be an interview I did with Tour de France commentator Ned Bolting about his fantastic book, 1923, The Mystery of Lot 212 and a Tour de France Obsession, which is out next week on June the 22nd. It's a great book and it was an interview I enjoyed immensely. Uh, That's in a bit, but first I'm going to catch up with James Start for the regular feature on Ruler Conversations that I'm not sure he would like me to call Start at the Finish. James has been at the Criterium de Dauphiné, so I'm going to tap him up for all the gossip and colour from the race. And apologies in advance for the slightly low quality of the audio. James's logistical shenanigans have meant that he's phoning in from a petrol station somewhere between the Alps and Mont Ventoux. So, James, thank you very much for joining us. Why are you somewhere between the Alps and Mont Ventoux? <laughs> uh, well, it's just the way uh, things happen. I was at the Criterium de Dauphiné, as you said... And then I also do on Tuesday after the uh, Montfontu Denivelle Challenge, which is a, the only one-day race that finishes on top of the Giant of Provence, uh, Montfontu. It's a wonderful race. And now I'm driving back down to the Montfontu Classic to get back on a bike tomorrow for that race. So, yeah, it's all uh, part of the, the, you know, being a second journalist is in this part of the season, for sure, as, as we're gearing up for the Tour de France, and it's just one of the high points of the season. So we're kind of running around in different directions, which puts me at a petrol station somewhere between NC and, and Baison de la Romaine. So we spoke the day before the time trial last week about the Dauphiné, and the race had been a little bit sprinty up to that point. And I'll just recap the Alpine stages for our listeners. There were two stage wins for Jonas Vingegaard and one apiece for Georg Zimmermann and Giulio Ciccone. But the biggest story of the race was Vingegaard emerging as the overall winner, quite a long way ahead of Adam Yates in second place. And there was an Australian trio of Ben O'Connor, Jai Hindley and Jack Haig, who came third to fifth. And I only had one eye on the race because I was up to a few different things at the weekend, but I did have enough of an eye on it to know that it looked like quite a straightforward win for Jonas Vingegaard. So, James, what were your impressions of Vingegaard? Uh, well, it was pretty much Vingegaard and the rest, huh? 
I think uh, coming out of this uh, Dauphiné, when you're looking at the Tour de France, just on paper, huh? On paper, the only person that can touch him is Pogacar. There's a question mark around his health as he comes back from the fracture he suffered at the Liège Bastogne Liège. I have a feeling he's going to be on form at the tour. I think it's going to be a two-man tour. But right now at the Stoffenate, it was a one-man show. What's he like close up watching? Because I find him kind of impenetrable. And he's currently got that air of invincibility, which is kind of hard to crack. What's he like close up when you're watching him at the race? Well, he doesn't give much away. He's a very private person. If you remember, uh, well, in the upcoming uh, issue of Rouleur, the tour issue, we interviewed Pogachar, And I asked Pogachar, I said, what's your relationship with Vingegaard? Do you, are you friendly or, or what? And he just said, you know, does anybody have really a relationship with him? And he wasn't really, a, it sounded very aggressive, but it really wasn't. He was just saying he's a very private person, doesn't do a lot of social media. And that seems to be the way. I mean, what is really clear to me is that he's a real family guy. I mean, he gets on that home train, the wind trainer after the, the after each stage to turn his legs, and he's on the phone immediately talking to his wife. Then his wife came with their kid. He just couldn't take his eyes off his kid. He's such a family guy. It's 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 really quite obvious. The whole big stardom of cycling, I think, is just beyond him. He doesn't really want to be bothered with that. He happens to be very good at racing a bike. He like Pogachar, they're good at everything you do. They rarely get into trouble. They always are well placed. They ride smart, and they're strong. I don't think that when he when the race is over, when he goes home, he's thinking about the bike race very much. I think he's thinking about, you know, uh, what can I do with my kid? Talking with his wife, things like that. And I got a few pictures of him after after one stage, just riding the rollers, and his kid was there, and they just could not take his eyes off off his kid. So I think that says a lot about who he is, to be honest. Does he give any sense that he feels pressure? Because obviously a lot of people seem to be of the opinion that he doesn't love all the hoo-ha about bike race. And what you've just said underlines that as well. But does this manifest in any way externally? Can you tell from observing him close up, as you do, that there is pressure on him? Or is he impervious to it? Well, there is pressure on him. And I think that's where he finds... um solace in his family i think he finds shelter there and you know after the tour last year he barely raced again and was really struggling with the stardom stuff and all the attention and and everything and he just was mentally wasted but you know he was very good in press conference he answers questions uh, very well very thoughtful um but he's one of those guys which is very i think a lot of these people uh they're very focused on their own performance you know they spend a lot of time with their computers with their watts with their power stuff and that's part of the DNA of the modern professional cyclist. As a result, they think more about their own performance than that of the competition, uh, which is interesting because in many ways, cycling is an individual sport, right? Even though it's run in a sort of team format. So like he was asked, what do you think about Pogachar? And he's just like, well, you know, I don't really follow Pogachar. I'm really focused on my own training, my own performance and, you know, whatnot. And he was asked, how are your numbers this year compared to last? And he's like, well, we changed our computers and our our tech so you have to actually ask a trainer who can compare those numbers better but i feel good obviously so just very focused on his own performance and himself he was clearly stronger than everyone else by a long way as well wasn't he just danced people off his wheel i mean the, the first there was a stage four so i only got second in the time trial to uh was that michael bear yeah, uh, who you know tremendous under 23 tt champion three times and just scored his first pro win here right a huge win for him but I was like, uh, okay, I know the guy's a good time trailer, but beating Vingegaard, I did not expect. So I was like, well, maybe it's not as good as we think. But then you look what he did to this competition. Well, he just dusted him. 
and then the next day confirmed it because he dusted him again uh, on the on the climbs at the end of the stage. And that just sort of shows the difference in levels here, I think. Vingegaard is clearly at a different level, and the only guy that I can see being a serious contender on paper is, you know, is Pogacar. Um, what about Adam Yates? When he was obviously quite a way behind Vingegaard, but I did get the impression he was clearly the second strongest rider in the race. And I was, I was looking back at his career... And, you know, he's not a young rider anymore. He's ridden 11 Grand Tours now. He's had a couple of fourth places and three ninth places. And I kind of suspect that if he was going to be a real Grand Tour contender, we'd have seen it by now. But best of the rest behind Vingegaard automatically puts him in still quite a rarefied position. It does, but he is racing with the same jersey as, as Taddy Pogacar. And I have a hard time seeing him, unless Pogacar is not as good, I have a hard time seeing him be the leader of the team. I think he got hired on because he's done 11 Grand Tours, because he's probably not going to win a Tour de France, and yet he's going to be a key support rider. That said, you know, anything happened to the Tour, you know, I mean, what would Vingegaard have done two years ago if Roglic had had a bad Tour? Because he went in as a support rider, and it was only after it was clear that Roglic was not on point that he showed his stuff and finished second. So we'd be curious to see what, what Yates would do if Pogacar is not on point. But I happen to think Pogacar is going to be pretty on point. For me, the other stars of the show were um, the mountains, the scenery, the climbs. There was a finish on the Col de la Croix de Fer, which is often used in the Tour de France to get from the north of the northern approach to Alpe d'Huez. The climb, which we talked about briefly uh, last week, the... Citadel in Grenoble, which also just looked fantastic, both um, aesthetically and from a sporting level. So what were they like on the ground? How were those two climbs? Oh, they lived up to their expectations totally. I mean, the Quad Fair is, is a magnificent climb. I love it. I've done a mountaintop finish there a few years ago for the Tour de l'Avenir and now to the Dauphiné. So that sometimes ASO, they start testing out the possibilities of a mountaintop finish by running some smaller races up that this was the highest summit finish ever in the Dauphiné I believe and are they preparing a coup for the next two or three years with the tour finishing on the quad fair could be it's a wonderful climb just kind of climbs out out of the lush uh, lower lands and then over this mountain lake it's pretty impressive and you know I think it's just rolled away from everybody once again and I love the Bastille climb which is yeah that citadel up above Grenoble and we used to do it in the 1990s I remember doing it, I think, uh, oh, probably the first, I think the first Dauphiné I ever did, which would have been probably like 93. I think Laurent Dufault won it that year. I can't remember exactly. And so I was really excited when it, we, we went up it again. I mean, it has a long history. Bernard Hoke, you know, winning it there after like crashing in a ravine, stuff like that. I mean, a lot of history has been written on that climb. And it's a steep, steep climb. It's like 10, 12. 15, 16%. It just doesn't stop. It's unrelenting. And I've seen, you know, cars get stuck on it. More than one cyclist put their foot down. It's really brutal. But it was a great way to finish up. Great racing. I mean, they, they didn't just wait for the Bastille, say, like they do at Flesh Wallon with the uh, Mural de Wee. They were racing all, over all those climbs, truly. And Alaphilippe went on the attack. It was his birthday. He clearly wanted to win a second stage. But it was uh, Giulio Ciccone. He was in the break with Alaphilippe. I didn't think he was the strongest. And then he just skirted away from them and nobody saw him again and he was really strong he came to the foot of the climb with what 30 40 seconds maybe 
two kilometers straight up. He never relented. He didn't look bad. He never looked like he was struggling. I mean, yeah, he was struggling. Was <laughs> always struggling watching him. But, you know, he kept a good rhythm all the way up there. And Vingegaard did not catch him. And he won a brilliant race. It was a beautiful victory for Ciccone because he was uh, focusing on the Giro. And they got COVID right before he was out. And so this was a great way to come back. And he's such a wonderful kid. He's just he's so much fun to, uh, in the press room. He's so light lighthearted and jokes and oh, I always like seeing him do well because he's, he's just a lot of fun to, to watch yeah it's funny you, I mean we talked about this last week how those stages in the Auvergne fit in with the stages in the Alps and it's interesting there's often a golfing perception between watching a race on television and how people view it and being on the ground at a race I think races are very different experienced on the ground than they are experienced through the television screen. But I still sense a, a kind of a diminution in the prestige of the Dauphiné. And I sometimes struggle to wonder what it's for, whether riders really target it or whether it just happens to be a convenient hit out just before the Tour de France. But what's the perspective from where you were on the ground? Does it feel like a prestigious race when you're there? more prestigious now I mean when you got the defending Tour de France uh, champ showing up on Tour de France form and, and really using it and then you've got pretty much every, you know I mean how many other contenders it was stuffed with Tour de France contenders podium contenders and top five contenders and they had an amazing week of racing because on paper what you, you don't see is those Auvergne stages don't have an inch of flatness I mean it's just always rolling which might explain why this pure sprinter struggled but for the guys riding the tour, it was tremendous. Great. Well, James, I'm going to let you get off to Mont Ventoux for tomorrow's race, which will be yesterday by the time the podcast is live. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. And next up, after a quick break, is Ned Bolting. There's great news for the Rouleau Conversations podcast. Our sponsor for this episode is Caldera Lab. Caldera Lab have developed an exciting range of high-performance skincare products which combine pharmaceutical-grade science with nature's purest and most potent ingredients. A leading clinical trial found that 9 out of 10 men experienced healthier and visibly improved skin after using Caldera Lab products. And we've got an exclusive offer coming up for 20% off Caldera Lab's best products. So, like most cyclists, I've spent a lot of time outdoors. Cycling keeps me young inside and very happy, but all that sun and wind does contribute to the ageing process of my skin. The laughter lines are a little more visible than they were five or ten years ago. However, Caldera Labs sent me their regimen bundle, and I can already see the beneficial effect that it's having. The Clean Slate is a balancing cleanser that refreshes my skin. The base layer is a nutrient-dense moisturiser which is quickly absorbed and just makes my face feel less dry. The Good is a night cream that reduces visibility of wrinkles and fine lines and I also look and feel a lot less tired because the Icon Rejuvenating Eye Serum has taken down those dark circles and the puffiness around my eyes. Caldera Labs are also committed to transparency, sustainability and excellence and they are on a mission to make men's skincare better. They use clean ingredients, they are a certified B Corporation and a member of 1% for the planet so they're helping the world as well as the confidence of their users. Upgrade your skin and your confidence with Caldera Lab. Ruler Conversations listeners can get 20% off at calderalab.com with our code RULER. 
And that's C-A-L-D-E-R-A-L-A-B.com. Go to calderalab.com slash ruler, and that's 20% off. Unlock your youthful glow and be ready for summer with Caldera Lab. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Rouleur 120, the Tours issue. Rouleur 120 is two magazines in one. We have two front covers, one for the Tour de France Homme and one for the Tour de France Femme, and each is packed with in-depth features about the races, their personalities and the culture around them. Rulo 120 features an exclusive interview and photo shoot with the double tour winner Tadej Pogacar. In a revealing chat with Rulo photojournalist James Start, Pogacar reflects on his journey through cycling and opens up about his relationship with the sport as a whole. Also in Rulo 120, exclusive interviews with five-time winner Miguel Indrain, French champion Audrey Cordon Rajot, the fastest rising sprinter in the sport Charlotte Coul plus Jean Etienne and Aurora Amori, whose family has owned the Tour de France for generations. Also, the original voice of cycling, Phil Liggett. We also chat with Betsy King, the pioneering and irrepressible North American cyclist who raced in the Tour Féminin during the 1980s. And we've got features about the Puy de Dôme, the iconic mountain which returns to the men's tour for the first time since 1988, the Gave de Pau, which is the Tour's spiritual river, the flowers of the Tour de France, and much, much more. Rouleur is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, and Rouleur 120 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to rouleur.cc, hit the subscribe button, and enter the code PODCAST15, PODCAST15, to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. I'm with Ned Bolting, cycling and darts commentator, raconteur. <laughs> I couldn't think of any other way to describe you in your capacity as a frontman of a one-man show. Um, editor, ruler columnist, and thank you for submitting clean copy on time. And now the author of 1923, The Mystery of Lot 212 and A Tour de France Obsession, which is out on June 22nd Correct. and published by Bloomsbury. Ned, welcome to Rouleau Conversations. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you. I've read it one and a half times now. It's right up my street, Ned. Increasingly, maybe this is a function of my increase... Uh, my, um, Don't say it. My Don't say it. years, my age. But the most interesting thing about cycling is everything else. Um, yes. And sometimes the most interesting thing about cycling is what is not happening in the bike race. Road racing is kind of a conduit for me to understand and explore the world, learn about it. And you've written a book which I think does just that because I've been struggling to classify this. Mm. Is this a cycling book, first and foremost? It's a really good question. I learned quite early on in my sort of journey in publishing that books are like um, tins of beans and that they are simply a commodity that you purchase, consume and throw away if you want to. And in that regard, publishers want to know where it sits in the supermarket. Is it with the cereals? Is it with the fresh fruit? Is it with the wine? Very clearly. And you know when you go to a supermarket and you're after something slightly indeterminate, like flaked almonds... Yeah. yeah, which are the flaked Where the hell are the flaked are almonds? Are they? are they going to be with the baking products or are they with nuts 
Or, you know those sort of things that slip between the gaps? Supermarkets don't like that. They don't like things that aren't clear. Publishers equally don't like books that aren't very clearly. You must have had a nightmare selling this one. So, so this is problematic, you know. On the plus side, I think when it is published, it's going to sit in both the sports section, the cycling section, and the history section. <laughs> at the moment, uh, my publicist just sent me a little link saying it's, it's, <laughs> it's the number one bestseller at the moment on the Amazon charts. Don't buy it on Amazon, but that's a reference in the Tour de France, but also in the history of Belgium and military history of World War I. Quite right, too. We will get onto the military history of World War One at some point, as you did in the book. So let's get the cycling out of the yeah. way. This book is about the... No, let's not get the cycling out of the way. Let's go do that. What is this book about, Ned? Well, it, God, it is about a lot of things. Um, it's about a thing that happened to me during our shared and common experience that we all struggled through of the pandemic. And the thing that happened to me was like a bolt of lightning. It was pure chance when a colleague of mine who has absolutely nothing to do with the world of cycling happened upon a lot at an online auction that he thought might interest me. It turned out I was pretty much the only person on planet Earth that was interested in this lot. And I bought at auction a reel of projected film from a long time ago whose provenance was unknown and whose contents were unknowable at the time. And I didn't pay very much money for it and it came into my life and I eventually, through a long-winded process, managed to get it uh, restored and digitised. And it's a a two-and-a-half-minute film of quite clearly an edition of the Tour de France, a stage on an edition of the Tour de France. So the the first job if you were already thinking of this in terms of the jobs you had to do was finding out when this took which place. day yeah. um, and that in itself was a very educational process because I don't know whether you knew this uh, you're steeped in cycling history I'm, I'm learning and trying to play catch up but I had no idea until I was presented with this conundrum that there were five editions of the post-World War One Tour de France that were literally identical. I just didn't know that. Yeah, they had the same route every they year. They had the same route every year for five years, consecutive years, until they started to break the race up into slightly smaller fragments. So that was interesting. And the year in question happens to be one of these years, which uh, led me to that itself was problematic, because yeah. which, which one was it? And how did you know it was one of these years? Because... I did the simplest thing. First of all, the first thing you see on the film is a, basically a stage map, and it says, Brest to Les Sables d'Olonne, 412 kilometres. Yeah, stage four. Uh, helpful. Very helpful. So first thing I did is put into Google, Brest to Les Sables d'Olonne, 412 kilometres. Got an instant hit that I didn't look beyond that said, that'll be the 1923 Tour de France, which it was, actually. But then I, I got sidetracked because I started to read around the, the subject of it, and I picked off my shelf... Albert Londres' famous book, uh, Les Forçats de la Route, yeah, The Convicts of the Road, about the Pellissier Mutiny in 1924, just because it was kind of close in time. And as I was reading that, he literally talks about the next day was Brest to Les Sables d'Olonne over 412 kilometres. That sounds quite similar. Identical. So then I thought, well, it could be 1924 then. And then I looked and found there were five consecutive years that were identical. It could be any one of these. So that kind of set me back. But that was just the very beginning of unpicking of all the detail in the book. Yeah. And before we get on to the rest of the story about that, it kind of got its tentacles into you, didn't it, this film? It, it kind of took a real hold of you. And why do you think that was? Well, I come back to your original question, what's this book about? Which I really should have been prepared for. <laughs> 
But the first thing that occurred to me was actually, Ed, the book's about me and my experience because I was deeply affected by the pandemic. I had a young family whose lives were, um, like many of us did, you know, put on hold and I felt terrible for them and I retreated within myself a little. And I found solace in this project that became more and more the central thing in my life. So the more I was horrified by uh, the Downing Street briefing at four o'clock and the, and the COVID charts and the sense of will it ever be back to where it was, which I think we all had that deep dread that the world was changed forever. The more I retreated into uh, the events of 100 years ago and found actually striking and chilling parallels between what was going on in the world back then and what is going on in the world now. So the, the, the echoes drew me in. It's quite morbid at times, but it worked as a, a, an escape hatch for me. And then you kind of happened upon the person who turned out to be the one of the central characters, probably the central character, but apart from yourself, yeah. which is Théophile Beekman. Beekman. Not a journeyman, too good to be a journeyman, not good enough to be a star, but a, a rider of the yeah. era. And he, of, he, um, he became yeah, yeah. a big part of your journey into this Tour de France. Yeah, absolutely. He he did become central to. Um, so he without I, it's a difficult book. I don't want to spoil the content of the book because I want the reader to come on this journey of discovery with me. But you're right to flag up this rider, and I don't imagine anyone listening to this, however rulery you are, will have ever have heard of Teofil Birkman. Because frankly, even though he won two stages of the Tour de France and finished just off the podium in the Tour de France, among other notable achievements, he was not a great. He was just very, very, very good. And also completely forgotten, even in his hometown, which is in Ninov, which, if you do know your recent cycling history, will ring a bell because Ninov is ingrained in East Flandrian folklore, having hosted the finish of the Tour of Flanders for many, many years and still hosts the finish of Omelette Pet Newsblad. So it's a cycling obsessed part of Belgium, but no one remembers Théophile Beekman. So I took it upon myself to become the guardian of his personal and professional history. And I'm sitting here in a soundproof booth in Somerset House in London talking to you in the certainty that no one on planet Earth knows more about Théophile Beckman than I do, including his living descendants who I tracked down. And it's a very odd position to be in, Ed. Because of this chain of coincidences, I have prevented his name from being completely erased from history. Why he and what he does in the film have smashed through the, the, the icy crust of frozen time now is pure chance. But that's what's happened. So he's dodged oblivion because of this strange coincidence. Yeah, it just so happens that the film that you bought at auction is not very long. Two and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes. And incomplete, because I think the projected film burnt on the bulb. So you don't actually see who wins the stage. No, no. It's, <laughs> it, it's, well, it's, it's <clears throat> very compelling, very mysterious. I've watched it a few times. There's, mm. there's a QR code in the book which you can scan and, and watch the movie. It's incredibly affecting, especially having read the book as well. But it just so happens that one of the captions did flag up his name, incorrectly spelled. Incorrectly spelled. But that just gave you a little hook, yes. didn't it? A little, the tiniest of hooks. I mean, the incorrect spelling wasn't helpful, <laughs> but very um, characteristic of the way his, the details of his life have been. Like, even even his family don't really know how to spell his surname. So within their family, there are two different versions of spellings. So it's kind of interchangeable, which I find extraordinary. Apt for Belgian as well. Maybe. Yeah, it may be very apt for. Maybe it's a very Belgian story. That yes, that was enough. That was like that was like um, trying to sort of climb an, a kind of ice wall and just being given a little pickaxe to to, to chip away at and. Once I'd sort of identified him and started to research his personal history, then it became my mission to think, well, okay, we know who that rider is in this bit of the film. 
but there's other shots where you've got multiple, you've got the whole peloton in vision, basically. I wonder who he is, and I wonder who he is. But this is black and white film from 1923. They all look the same. You know, they all look the same. It's very, very it's hard enough in 2023 to identify the peloton, isn't it? But this was a real challenge. And then I went, well, is it possible to pick out, like, are there any star riders in this particular bit of the film? Turns out there were, and it's littered with them. And here I don't want to give away too much, but in this film captured us truly some of the greats of that era with the most extraordinary biographies, some of which are quite well known, but even if you don't know them, they're worth retelling, and those stories get retold in the book as well. Yeah, and that difficulty of identifying is kind of a metaphor for the way we sometimes look at life itself, because sometimes life moves a bit fast, that you don't see the details, you can't see the snapshots, and with your film, when you freeze the frames, the quality is so grainy and hard that it it makes it more mysterious it does. in a way. It, it, it absolutely does. It's incredibly frustrating, actually, that the only way of looking in detail at this film is to run it in real time. Because as soon as you start like slowing it down, the distortions just get amplified, actually. Equally, it, it, it's incredible how many weeks, literally back-to-back -back weeks and months of my life, I have spent looking at a two-and-a-half-minute reel of film. In, I mean, I close my eye, I can play it back in my head, and every single frame is imprinted in there. Yeah. You know. There's so much serendipity involved as well, isn't there, with just people who, who are in the in in the film, but also the fact that it's a hundred years ago yeah. this summer. I mean, we're we're in June now. It, you know, the, these events that that it was a hundred years June, ago this the, month. June the thirtieth. Yeah, June the thirtieth, nineteen twenty-three is the day on which the film was shot, and that's just around the corner. Yeah. And it absolutely thrills me that it's the, the exact. In fact. June the 30th this year is the eve of the Tour de France. It's the day before the Tour de France starts. Perfect, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And you don't want to give away too much about the people in there, but the book is also populated by quite a fascinating list of dramatis personae. I mean, Bateman's is the central figure, but obviously <clears throat> there are other riders, the people who won the Tour de France, the, 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 the major riders. Um, also Henri Derigange, uh, Willy Verheger, who's yeah. a, a poet yes. who I, I met I met him a few years You've ago. You've met Willie, well. yeah? I, I interviewed him for my book about the Tour of Flanders because he's really basically the, the poet laureate of the Tour of Flanders and yeah. he also wrote you a poem yes. for yeah. this book. But <clears throat> the supporting characters, cyclists, non-cyclists, athletes, politicians, people in the literary world, they're also a central part of this book. I mean, completely. So my source material for almost all of the research, and bear in mind I was, most of this research happened during COVID, so I was sat at my desk, was the unfathomable depths of the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale, which is on the online resource, free to access for anyone, of the French National Library. And they have scanned in all the newspapers from that era, and there are lots. So there was a great wealth of stuff. And once I'd sort of mined it for all the cycling information I could get out of, uh, about the Tour de France, I became, it really started to engage with what was going on on the front pages and on all the other pages, on the arts pages. And, and the, you know, so I started to look at the broader context of, like, we, as you said, like, it's a conduit into a world, isn't it, road racing? And so I started to look at the historical and cultural context in which the bike race was happening, which let's not... Let's not forget, these riders in the peloton, in the film, were all part of the lost generation. By definition, none of them could have got through those years of the First World War. Just remind us who the lost generation were. Well, it was a phrase coined by Hemingway, who is a character in my book. He features a lot because, you know, Hemingway's connection and devotion to road racing and cycling is actually quite profound. And his personal biography interweaves in startling ways, that I found out, with Ottavio Bottecchia, the Italian uh, cyclist, who's also a character in the film. But... He coined the phrase, or rather he quoted his literary mentor Gertrude Stein, 
in Paris, and she described rather dismissively Hemingway's uh, sort of like slightly pompous, morbid character. She said, you lot, you are all the lost generation, by which she meant your lives have been broken by your experiences of the First World War, and as a result, you're doomed. And also, let's not forget the flu pandemic of the Spanish flu. So I, I was writing this in a, you know, in a, in the middle of a pandemic, to writing at point at times about a pandemic. It was, um, yeah, and of course the great tragedy of, Span- of Spanish flu was that it was, in many ways, it operated in an opposite way to the COVID pandemic because it affected more than anyone else the young, and there was no vaccine and there was only one way out, and that was herd immunity, and the only way of achieving that was through colossal loss of life. So the scarring of that generation ran deep in the peloton, you know. Yeah, and like we've said, tour and sport do not happen in a vacuum, and no sporting event takes place or is inseparable from the wider culture in which it happens. So give us a bit of background on 1923, because I get the impression you're interested in history, maybe military history and geopolitics. Yeah, I didn't really know I was, Ed, until I started to become interested in... Well, military history's never interested me at all, but I became borderline obsessed with the year 1923 itself. And I'm not a historian, I'm not a trained historian, I've never kind of like... But the more I started to scratch away at it, the more I started to feel that this is a very significant year in European history. There's a thing going on in June 1923 that is called the, the Occupation of the Ruhr, um, it was that part of the aftermath of the Versa- Treaty of Versailles. The French and the Belgians decided that Germany was not meeting its repayment terms, its swinging repayment terms. And they literally, first of all, uh, occupied the Rhine Valley, but that wasn't enough. They then, in early 1923, moved further into Germany and confiscated Germany's industrial output in the Ruhr Valley, so steel, coal. They literally loaded up onto trains and took it. That provoked... Uh, the wave of hyperinflation in Germany that peaked in 1923. And its absolute peak was in November 1923, just weeks before Adolf Hitler tried to seize power in Munich. Uh, with the, with the, this is not nothing that's going on here, right? My thesis then became that this is the junction between the end of the First World War, the, 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 the afterglow as the guns are cooling of the First World War, and the firing pistol to start the Second World War. For my mind, it happened in 1923. Yeah, and all this stuff was happening on the very eastern, well, beyond the eastern border of France, the race that you right over the on the west, yeah. which makes you think, well, they're two separate things, but actually, the Tour de France was used almost overtly and explicitly as a statement of French geopolitical unity. 100%. And you've mentioned this in the book as well. Also, there's a little snippet which I love, which is got an old map of the Holy Roman Empire, which I would recommend any listener to this, any reader of Ruler, to just look into the Holy Roman Empire because the the history of how Central and Western Europe became the way it is now is a long and impossibly complex thing. But these events in 1923 are entirely bound up with with that, aren't they? Completely. I mean, another point in history that resonated for me as as I contemplate these big themes... See, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a linguist. I, I, I studied French and German. And so I kind of feel like that I'm slightly uh, straddle both cultures. Alsatian, maybe. I, I, yeah, maybe. I've got, kind of like, I've got a bit of an investment in both sides. And they are so mutually exclusive in some ways. And I suddenly remember you know, talking about this old enmity, First World War, Second World War, and even before that, the, the Prussian, Franco-Prussian War of 1870, very important before that, then Napoleon, his incursions into Germany, all that, all that. But then in my lifetime... 
I remember seeing, and I was a kid at the time, maybe 12 or 13, uh, in a newspaper that my parents had unfolded on a kitchen table. I remember seeing that f- iconic photograph of Helmut Kohl, the German Chancellor, and François Mitterrand, who was like half his size, holding hands outside the, um, the ossuary in Douaumont, near Verdun. The significance of that probably escaped me at the time, but now I think back at it, I think that's extraordinary that finally France and Germany, and now, of course, you know, Macron, the seat of power in Berlin and Paris, and cr- they are driving the big European project, for better or worse. I think it's for better. You know, it kind of prevents Europe from falling apart. So these are big themes, and they boil down to you know, extreme prominence in 1923. Yeah, but there's more to life than geopolitics, mm. and you've also talked a lot in the book about uh, Paris in 1923 was a, a cultural and artistic oh. hotbed. The people who lived in Paris around that time was like Hemingway, James Joyce, Ho, Ho Chi Minh, who's obviously Ho not a cultural figure, but a yeah. political figure, honing yeah. his political chops in Paris. There was Gertrude Stein, who was an incredible sponsor of all the arts, and poetry readings and so tell us a bit about that aspect Man because Ray. The, the literary Man Ray the kind of Dadaist photographer yeah um, there's so many fascinating characters all convened in Paris in this time making it probably the most avant-garde place maybe that there has ever been I think Paris has had many peaks you know of importance but I think one of them happens around about now uh, and there was a, an idealism that bordered on desperation about abroad in Paris at that time so you know if you think back to Paris in the Belle Epoque before the First World War before the birth of modernity you know that's one thing isn't it but it's a rather cosy world it was nice wasn't it it was nice yeah. it was nice this what's going on in Paris in 1920 isn't, isn't necessarily nice it's just exuberant and and risky and brittle but just overwhelmed with kind of like grand ideas and this sense that everything is possible now. It is the birth of modernity, isn't it? This is what's happening. What I love in particular is the way that, you know, we we live in a very separate world now where you study art or you study sport and they're very different world. Well, in Paris in 1923, they're not, are they? Hemingway's obsessed with sport and he's right on the sort of sharp cutting edge of a new form of literature as well and moving in all these circles. And equally, some of the great sporting figures are heavily invested in the arts as well. Henri Desgranges went on to, you know, found a newspaper called Comedia, which was about the arts. There's a fascinating character called Victor Braillet, who I'd never heard of, who plays a central part in kind of um, the birth of the Tour de France. But he, he straddled into literature as well. And even, I write, one of the other characters who pops up about whom I knew nothing until I started writing this book is a boxer from Senegal called Battling Siki. But he, when he's not boxing, behaves as if he's a kind of Dada's poet. He wanders around with lion cubs on a lead, to whom, and he feeds them absinthe. And he got arrested at one point because he fired a starting pistol in a theatre. You know, and he's just like... All these characters are just off the scale for yeah. me. And there was one more overlap between the world of arts and the world of cycling, which it pops up every now and then. Alfred Jarry, uh, who you've uh, got uh, a lot... Jarry, I know you've yeah. got a lot of time for Alfred yeah. Jarry, who was a kind of dissolute waster of a genius artist. And, and died a long time before this. I mean, the connection is a little bit more fragile with, with Jarry, because he died He died before the first war. I think he said before the first Yes, he did. So he's a, he died tragically young. But he, he wrote a play called Ubu Roi, which was performed in 1896, which by coincidence happened to be the year that Théophile Beekman was born. His, his personal biography overlaps with all these other characters in interesting ways. But Jarry was not only the most extraordinary alcoholic. I mean, his intake, I've detailed it in the book, is just the stuff of legends. No surprise that he died penniless at the age of 32 or whatever it was. 
But he was an obsessive cyclist as well, and he wrote some absolutely bonkers material about cycling that it's almost impossible to understand because only he understood it. Yeah, and <laughs> just just to link it to cycling in the present day, even you heard a commentator. A French yeah. commentator used the word Uber-esque to... It was, it was Madiot. Was it Madiot? Okay. It, it was Mark Madiot. He described, this is going back a few years, in, in, in an interview, he described one of his um, riders going on some hopeless breakaway, you know, that was doomed, as Uber-esque. Fantastic. And at the time, I didn't really know what he meant, and now I do. Yeah. And I mentioned about half an hour ago that we were going to start with the cycling. We didn't start with the cycling, but just so there's a bit of cycling for our listeners, can you just tell us what happened in the 1923 Tour de France, what the sporting side of it was? It was very important. It's not one that you know people don't remember in the same breath as 1924, which was famous for the Pelissier's mutiny, but it was the end of a seven-year run of Belgian victories. So France hadn't won the Tour de France uh, since the First World War. In 1923, that series of defeats, which were considered defeats, um, was put to an end by Henri Pelissier, his only Tour de France victory. But he was a rider who'd already won an awful lot and should have won the Tour de France several times over, but he had this absurd relationship with the race and with Desgranges and kept flouncing off in all these different ways. In 1923, though, the stars aligned and he put that to rest. But it also was the emergence of uh, the man who would go on to win two tours thereafter, uh, the first Italian to win the Tour de France, Ottavio Botecchia. So really, in terms of the general classification, it's a story of those two riders. Did this book end up how you thought it would when you started it? Good grief. No. And actually, you know, if you're interested in writing and, and the way books are written, and Ed, you've written, how many books have you written? Uh, four or five. Four or five? Yeah. I would imagine, knowing your books and the ones that I've read, that every book you've written has sort of roughly 20, 22 chapters. That kind of thing, yeah, yeah. something like that, and those chapters are of a certain length. I remember my agent saying, "Oh, that chapter's a bit short." I said, "Well, that's how long that's it's meant that, to that's be." How long it's meant to be? I suddenly realised I st- that's the only way I knew how to write books. Every book I've written has been roughly structured like that. I couldn't do that with this book. It was too it, because it, the universe just breaks into shatters into so many pieces here. I was going to use the word fragmentary. It's, it's it is very it. fragmentary, so I had to use a completely different narrative style, which you'll you'll see when you read the book. But um, which was as a writer was really quite a journey. And I only mention that by way of saying I set out to write a book, but I didn't know what that book was going to be until I'd finished it. Yeah. And that's not something I've done before. Did you find what you were looking for with this book? Yeah, but it's not over. <laughs> I can't begin to tell you how deep this book sits within me, because only a couple of weeks ago I was at the Giro and I was shocked to see that Mount Etna had erupted in almost exactly the same manner that it did in a hundred years ago in, in uh, on the same slopes as well uh, just to the west of Catania yeah. as it did in 1923 where it was particularly active so that you'll understand when you read the book how much that resonates with me Etna has exploded again these after echoes of a hundred years ago uh, just keep popping up and and then stuff is happening in the real world to me, like there's a little town in Brittany, which features quite extensively in the book, called La Roche-Bernard. Beautiful place, actually. Absolutely stunning little place. And a day after the Tour de France finishes this year, I've been invited by the mayor and by a couple of the characters who I met into La Roche-Bernard. For, to, um, they're hosting a civic reception for me, yeah. and they're going to show the film and do a little Q&A with me. And uh, nothing thrills me more than that. Yeah, well, I mean, fantastic. six people might turn up, but I don't care. You know, it's... Uh, yeah. I'll be lucky if I get six. And you, you, you said in the book, like, the, the shadows of history cast both forwards and, and back, backwards. Yeah. So, and that extends to today, and it will carry on extending for weeks and months. I think so. To come. I think so. I think it's some. Um, 
<laughs> Pandora's box. I opened something I had no idea what was about to fly out. Yeah. So, Ned, I really enjoyed the book. Thanks, Ned. Yeah, I can it, tell. I, I can I, tell I, just by the, your questioning. I can tell that you've understood the, the project. I, I hope really so. I'm going to. I'm going to read it again, or I'm going to finish reading it for the second time. Wow. It's the kind of book I think that you can go back into because there are so many little nuggets of history, cycling, politics, art, culture, geography. Everything is in there. So, I'd really recommend our listeners get hold of a copy. 1923, the mystery of lot 212, and a. Tour de France Obsession, out on June 22nd, published by Bloomsbury. Available all good bookshops, probably bad bookshops as well. But, I'd like to think so, but, yeah. But yeah. All, all Amazon bookshops. is a spectacularly bad bookshop. Yeah, but buy it from an independent <laughs> bookseller yeah. if you can. And I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. Ned, thank you very much for coming on Ruler Conversations. Thank you, Ed. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine or visit our website at Ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.